How does a person become a Christian? How does a person, a rational, modern person, get on their knees and worship Jesus? In our text today from Matthew 2, we find in verse 1 that magi from the east come looking for Jesus. These magi, also known as wise men, three kings, these are intelligent, bright scholars of their day from the East, learned men. Now, on a side note, for the last year and a half, I've had a parishioner anonymously sending me jokes, handwritten jokes, every Monday morning. I come to my desk and there's a handwritten joke and, and many of them have worked themselves into sermons. I have no idea who the person is. There's been a little hints along the way and every time I think I've figured it out, it's always someone else. So the anonymous, uh, the anonymity continues through 2019. Uh, but I got this joke actually sent. This was an epiphany sermon, uh, sermon joke and um, it's probably one of the worst. So... Um, <laughs> But the question is this, and this person particularly likes the fact that I'm Canadian and is very encouraging of trying to help me become Texan. And so this is the joke. Um, why in their nativity scenes do Texans put firemen's helmets on the magi, on the wise men? Why in Texan nativity scenes do they put firemen's helmets on the magi? And the answer is because as the song says, they came from afar. See, I told you it was like the worst joke ever, but hey, it worked itself into a sermon. I love it. I love it. But here's what's amazing with the Magi, these learned men that came from afar. They are these learned men, and yet verse 2 tells us the reason they're there is they've come to worship the baby born, the one born king of the Jews. They've come to worship. These learned men have come for the purpose of worship. In verse 11, when they find the baby, we're told that they fell down and worshipped him. I mean, our secular world laughs. Wise men on their knees, faith, worship. Makes me think of Blaise Pascal, one of the greatest scientific minds of the modern world. Blaise Pascal, you know, a brilliant leader in mathematics and physics, who, by the way, generous to the poor. At Pascal's funeral, the church was full of the dignitaries and the intellectual elites of his day, but the whole back of the church was full of beggars and street people as they came to remember their friend. But Blaise Pascal, one of the brightest minds in the modern world, on November 23rd, 1621, wrote these words. In his journal, I submit myself absolutely to Jesus Christ, my Redeemer. This is a wise man on his knees. How do we become Christians? How do we grow as believers? How do rational, intelligent, thoughtful people today get on their knees and worship Jesus? Well, as we walk through uh, January, we'll be looking at the question of evangelism, the question of how do we invite and outreach. And this epiphany text here this Sunday gives us a wonderful window into what goes on as part of the process of taking someone 
without faith and bringing them to that place where they get on their knees and worship Jesus. This epiphany text gives us a window in because we see that in order for us to get on our knees and worship Jesus, to, to, to be able to become Christians and grow as Christians, the first thing this text shows us is that we need to be dethroned by Jesus. The first thing the king, the true king of kings and lord of lords does when he comes into our life is he dethrones us. But not only does he dethrone us, he disciples us. He doesn't just kick us off our, our false throne, but he then gives us new direction and new leadership in our lives. But not only does he dethrone us and not only does he disciple us, but in order for a person to get on their knees and worship him, Jesus must draw that person to himself. Ultimately, it's going to be his work of drawing a person to himself. And so first, how does this monumental surrender, this monumental transition to faith happen? Well, Jesus needs to dethrone us. Verse 3 tells us that when Herod the king heard the words from the wise men that they'd come to find the one born king of the Jews, we're told in verse 3 that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And there's no doubt that when Herod the Great, the king of Judea, is troubled, everyone in Jerusalem is troubled because they know it's going to be trouble for them as well. This is Herod the Great. This is the man who, as a client king for Rome, had put to death three of his own sons just to secure his dynasty. This is the man, Herod the Great, that Caesar Augustus once said, it is better to be Herod's pig than to be his son. And this is Herod the Great, who if we continue reading in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16, that when he saw he'd been tricked by the Magi, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. This is Herod the Great. No wonder Jerusalem is troubled when he is troubled. But here's what's really cool. Is Matthew, in this text, dethrones Herod right before our eyes. And he does it linguistically. I mean, Herod continues through his life up until the fourth year BC. He continues to be king, but Matthew has effectively dethroned him linguistically here. Here's what I mean. Verse 1, when we first hear about Herod the Great, the, the, the name, the proper monarch's name is used. Herod the king. Verse 1. Right? It's appropriate. He's the king. Uh, verse 3, again, Herod the king. Verse 7, when the wise men are getting directions to Bethlehem, Herod, and he's the king. But here's what happens. When the wise men get, in verse 11, to the child, and they find the true king of kings and the true lord of lords, from that point on in Matthew's gospel, Herod is never again referred to as Herod the king. Now, you may say that's a little bit of a, a stretch. It isn't. Matthew's doing this on purpose. In this moment, what's happened is Herod the king has become simply Herod. Verse 12, Herod, no reference to king. Verse 13, Herod. Verse 15, Herod. Verse 16, Herod. Verse 19, and Herod died. Matthew has effectively dethroned him right before our eyes because once those magi find the true king, then every other king must get off their thrones in the face of the king of kings and the lord 
of lords. And we need to grapple with this. If it's true that Jesus, in fact, is the king of the cosmos, then all other kings and all other attempts to build our own thrones and sit on them must be put aside. It's like in my favorite book in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There's a moment where King Caspian returns to the Lone Islands. And the Lone Islands are a part of Narnia that the kings of Narnia for many, many years have not visited. So the governor, Gumpus, has become really the autocrat there. And he's horrible and he treats people terribly. He is a false king sitting on his throne. Indulge me while I read. Behind a table at the far end, with various secretaries about him, sat his sufficiency, the governor of the Lone Islands. Gumpus was a bilious-looking man with hair that had once been red and was now mostly gray. He glanced up at the strangers as they entered and then looked down at his papers, saying automatically, no interviews without appointments except between 9 and 10 p.m. on second Saturdays. King Caspian nodded to Lord Byrne and then stood aside. Byrne and Drinian took a step forward and each seized one end of the table. They lifted it and flung it on one side of the hall where it rolled over, scattering a cascade of letters, dossiers, ink pots, pens, sealing wax, and documents. And then not roughly, but as firmly as if their hands were pincers of steel, they plucked Gumpus out of his chair and deposited him facing it about four feet away. Caspian at once sat down in the chair, laid his naked sword across his knees and said, my Lord, fixing his eyes on Gumpus, you have not given us quite the welcome we expected. We are the king of Narnia. And is this not what will happen in our lives when the king of kings and the Lord of Lords enters in. You see, Herod's not the only one that needs to get dethroned. You and I need to get dethroned each and every day. We have a propensity as human beings to have everything ultimately circle around us. Luther famously said that the human heart is bent towards self. And it's true. Within our heart, within our mind, we have a terrible propensity to make everything about us. And we erect these thrones and we sit on them. But then the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords comes into our life and we must be dethroned in his presence. Isn't it true that when Jesus comes into your life, he starts causing problems? It's true because he's the king and you're not. It's hugely problematic for a human heart. We must be dethroned. And this doesn't happen once. This happens each and every day. I am a chronic throne builder. And daily, I need to be dethroned. But see, it's not just that to bend our knees and worship Jesus, we need to be dethroned. That that process of becoming a Christian is this act of being dethroned. But it's also that he needs to disciple us. Right? It's one thing to get us off our false thrones, but don't leave us rudderless. Give us some direction. And he does. 
See, it's not just that he dethrones us, then he lovingly comes alongside and disciples us, directs us, leads us, shows us how we're to live. In verse 12, after the Magi meets Jesus and they worship, we're told that in a dream, an angel of the Lord told them not to return to Herod. That was their plan, go back to Herod. And so the angel directs them elsewhere, and so they leave, we're told, they departed another way. Departing another way could be for Matthew a way of actually talking about repentance. Because to repent, by definition, is to say, I'm going in this way, and then I'm going to turn around and instead go this way. So Matthew could say in one sense, the Magi are repenting. They were going the wrong way, and they turned around. But I think Matthew's actually doing something a little more clever by saying they departed another way. As They read the book of Acts. What you find is a reference to the fact that you have Christianity described with another name. It's called the way. That the way of being a Christian, the way of following Jesus is referred to as the way. And so in some ways, is it possible that Matthew is saying effectively that the Magi now are really becoming part of the way. They're beginning to get direction and leadership from Jesus. They're beginning to follow after his lead. It's not just that we're dethroned, but we get directed, we get discipled. The word disciple implies there's a master and there's a student. Right? Disciple means that I'm the student and then there's one who's a teacher, who's a rabbi, who's going to lead me and show me the way I should go. The goal of disciples in the first century was that they would follow so closely to their rabbis, to their teachers, to their masters, that they could begin learning how to live their lives just like the rabbi. That every part of the way they read Torah, the way they lived their lives, the way they taught, all of it became a reflection of them learning to follow after the rabbi and become like him. And this is what he does in our lives, but he's got to get us off our throne first. And then he can lead. Then he can disciple. Then he can show us how to live. Matthew, the tax collector, knows all about this reality of being called to follow Jesus, to become a disciple. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, we read these words where he says of himself, Jesus passed on from there and saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. Matthew became a disciple. Matthew began following Jesus, watching him, seeking to live his life. See, Christianity Christianity tells us that to be human, and I know this is a big blow to our ego, but to be human means that we actually don't know. We don't have the competency or capacity to figure out what truly the good life is. You know, Romans 6 tells us that. We, we, in one sense, kind of know what we should do, but we, it's impossible for us to do it. We fall down each and every time. We cannot figure out in our own lives how to direct our own lives. I remember when I was in high school, stereotypical Canadian, you know, we played a ton of street hockey. Every time we had free time, the nets came out and the sticks and there were lots of scraped knees and, 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 you know, a lot of elbows in the face. And I'll tell you, we were pretty convinced, my friends and I, that we were the best street hockey players in the country. Like it, we, we would give each other names like Gretzky and Hull and Bobby Orr and the rest. And we just, we just thought we are the best ones around. Like we're really, really good. If it had been like today, we would have been, you know, live streaming it, right? Um, 
And then one day, though, a friend of mine brought his cousin to play with us. He was a few years older than us, and he'd been drafted by the NHL. We really aren't that good. <laughs> it was awful. Like, he just, like, ran around us with a puck. We, like, we couldn't do anything in his presence. And so it is as we come into face-to-face, come into a relationship with Jesus. This is the one who knows what it is to be really human, truly human truly righteous, to live the good life. When we come into his presence, we realize that I really don't know. I do not have the competency or the capacity to just direct my own life. I need him to. I need to follow him. I need him to lead me and show me and model for me what it means to be truly human. As John 1 verse 4 says of the incarnation, Jesus coming to the world, in him was life. And that life was the light of the world. In other words, you can look at Jesus' life and see there the fullest expression of what it means to be human. See, this enormous transition where we come to a place where we can kneel down and worship Jesus, where we can become Christians and continue to grow as people of faith, requires that Jesus dethrone us, the true King of Kings, but also that he disciples us that he shows us how to live. But it's not enough that he simply dethrones us and disciples us. Because we might at the end of the day say, well, you know, I guess I'm a pretty responsive person. I guess I woke up one morning and decided, man, I'm going to fix my life and I'm going to ask Jesus to dethrone me and then I'm going to get him to disciple me. And really at the end of the day, it becomes all about you. Again, remember that bent toward self? So here's the gospel. You didn't decide to do this on your own. You didn't one day figure out, you know, I think I should let Jesus dethrone me. No, you didn't. You were drawn. You and I were drawn. If you are in Christ, you were drawn to him by his own pull and power. And if you are exploring Christ, then you're here because you're being drawn still. You see, we see this in the text that Jesus must draw us to himself because two times in the text, Matthew uses the word behold. Now, it's one of these words we don't use in vernacular English anymore. We don't say behold the manger, behold a people. We don't talk like that. But in the Bible, it's a very important word because it's meant to be a shocking word. It's meant to say, whoa, 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 hold on. Look at this. Twice, Matthew has this shocking word come up. Verse 1 and verse 9. Behold, magi. Shock of all shocks, the magi. And then verse 9. Behold the star, shock of all shocks, the star. Now, I know you all have heard, some of you have heard me teach on the star and the Magi before because every year on Epiphany, I teach on this and I will continue to teach on this every year on the Epiphany um, until the Lord completely changes my mind on this. Here's the reality. The reason that Matthew's so shocked, verse one, the Magi there, is because it's not just that they're intelligent people. Wow, these intelligent men are here. It's because they're Gentiles. These are not Jewish people. They come saying, we've come to find him who's been born king of the Jews. And they're Easterners, they're astrologists. They're the last people you'd expect to show up here. So why are they here? Well, they were drawn by the baby. See, we're told that they saw his star when it rose or saw his star in the east. So something happened in the night sky that they saw that by which they were able to discern, we need to go to Jerusalem and find this king of the Jews who's been born. 
And so they went. They were drawn. Now, we don't know what happened in the sky. We don't know if it was a new star or if it was a star doing something weird or if it was the convergence of a few different stars. Matthew doesn't get into the details, and I think it's for this reason. He wants us to simply know the fact that whatever happened in the sky, it drew them to the baby. They were drawn to the baby. That's how magnetic he is. He pulls Gentiles, the people who last expect to be there, to his person. But not only that, behold the star. And this is even more magnetic. Behold the star. What's so surprising about the star? Well, in order to explain how surprising and shocking it is, we've got to undo the misconception that's often uh, put together in Christmas carols. I love the Christmas carols. We keep singing those Christmas carols, but at the end of the day, we follow what scripture says, not what the Christmas carols say. Amen? So here's what the carol tells you. The carol tells you that the story of the wise men and the star is this. They saw the star in the east. Ooh, something big's going on in Palestine, in Israel. And so they start following the star because it's moving west. So they follow it west. And then the star gets to Jerusalem and then immediately turns south and starts moving south. So they follow it south. It's like a first century GPS. That's what the carol says. You know, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light, right? That's what we sing. That's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say in verse two that they saw the star in the east at its rising. And then in verse seven, they come to Jerusalem and they ask Herod where the child is to be born. The star's clearly not directing them. They don't know where to go next. And Herod even asks about the star. Tell me more about the star, verse 7. In other words, Herod's not looking at the star. The star is not there. Where's the star? They left the star in its place in the night sky in the east, like all stars stay, right? They moved west based on what they'd seen in the sky, but the star stayed behind. Then they got to Jerusalem, and how did they go to Bethlehem? Scripture told them. Verse 6, they call the scribes and the Bible teachers, and they say, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Oh, the Christ should be born in Bethlehem. Scripture leads them south. But then here's what happens. These magi who left the star in the east and had scripture guide them south, when they arrive at Bethlehem, here's where the word behold comes, verse 9, behold, shock of shocks, there's the star that they left behind in the east. Miraculously, supernaturally, the star they had left long before now was with them in Bethlehem. Now you may say that's impossible. How could a star be pulled? Have you met the baby? I was preaching on this, my very first parish. I was a youth worker uh, out in the west coast of Canada. And it was my first epiphany 20 years ago. And I was preaching this. And uh, afterwards, it was the first time I'd ever preached it. A member of the congregation says to me, he says, interesting about the star. He said, you know, I am an astrophysicist. I said, great. <laughs> and he said, no, no, no. He said, it kind of works. I said, tell me more. And he said, I was bad at physics. But he says, we understand in astrophysics, certainly within basic physics principles, that the larger the mass of an object, the stronger gravitational pull it will have on smaller objects. And then he said to me at that door of the church, 
If the creator of the universe has come into his creation, would that not be ultimately the largest mass object that ever could come into this place? Sure, it can move a star. You see, Lucy in Narnia, two Narnia references today, at one point says this of the manger. She says, in our world too, a stable once held something inside it that was bigger than the whole world. This is who Jesus is. The king, the creator has come in the flesh. He draws magis. He draws stars. And he draws you and me. He draws us to himself. He pulls, do you hear the gospel in this? That we did not wake up one day and decide that we were going to sort ourselves out. No, Jesus, from the moment he came into this world, has been drawing the world to himself. Whether we feel it or not, the truth is he's drawing us. And I'll tell you, the cost of this draw is enormous. What it cost him to draw the world to himself was enormous. Because in John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus himself talks about his magnetic pull on the world. And he says, speaking of the crucifixion, he says, and I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. In other words, the crucifixion of the Son of God, that moment when Jesus took everything wrong in you and me on himself, when he took our death and died it in our place, that moment within human history, that cross moment, becomes the center point of every human life. And every human life is going to be drawn to that moment because this is what we need more than anything else in creation is to come and know the one who paid it all for us. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. That's grace. That's love. How does a person become a Christian? How does an intelligent, rational person get on their knees and worship Jesus? Well, it keeps happening. It's not just a one-time thing. But it requires that Jesus dethrone us. We need to meet the king and have him get us off our thrones. But not only dethrone us, he needs to disciple us. He needs to give us that leadership. We need to submit as disciples to his lead in our lives. But not only dethroning us and discipling us, it all happens, whether you're a Christian today or not. It's because Jesus is drawing you to himself in love, in great love. He was willing to pay it all to draw you to himself, that you would be forgiven, live forever with him. This is the draw of that baby born in Bethlehem. Isn't it true that the biggest frustration in our lives, it often seems, is we keep fighting against that draw? We keep pushing back. We keep resisting. In 2019, let's stop. Let's stop resisting the pull. Let's stop resisting the draw he's placing on our lives. Let's surrender. Let's give in to that draw. And let's get on our knees and worship him and see what he will make of our lives. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.